This is the Worldly Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Holly. And I'm Luke. And through the conversations we're having on this podcast, we're seeking to connect with what worldly wellbeing means. And by listening today, you're joining with us. Today, we are really excited to introduce Oscar Boyd to the Worldly Wellbeing Podcast listeners. Oscar is a journalist and podcaster in Tokyo, Japan, and I'm really excited to have a chat with him. I should be at this time right now in Japan, but given the current context, that's not going to happen. I mean, to be honest, Luke, it's the next best thing, really, isn't it? Yeah, let's dive right in. Let's go. Well, hi there, Oscar. Hello. Thank you so much for having me on today. Hello, Oscar. Thanks for coming along. It's really great that you've been able to join us for the Worldly Wellbeing podcast today. Uh, we are talking to you live in Tokyo in Japan, which it, with some confusing time differences thrown in for, for good measure and uh, potentially some stormy weather over there as well. Um, so uh, we're, it's all very exciting for us here today. Uh, but for those who don't know you, Oscar, maybe you could say uh, hello and who you are and what you do. Yeah, it's going to be a very, very exciting podcast recording, I think. Uh, so my name is Oscar and I live, yes, here in Tokyo, Japan, uh, Japan's finest, biggest capital city. And I normally run a podcast for the Japan Times, which is Japan's oldest and largest uh, English newspaper out here. And the podcast is called Deep Dive. Uh, it's kind of a current event, uh, current affairs show. So every week we look at kind of what's happening in Japan uh, and how that's kind of affecting life for people living here. A lot of it, as you might expect, has focused on coronavirus recently. But, you know, every now and then we get to throw in a more exciting episode, like uh, taking my colleague up to the top of Mount Fuji, something like that, which is, uh, yeah, always good fun it's a podcast that um i started listening to last year i think lots of people got into podcasts in a variety <laughs> of different ways last year because it was like yeah. oh this is something to listen to this is something including to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and even absolutely. making them as well yeah yeah, yeah. Our, you know our story is that that's when we kind of sat down together and realized that we might want to talk about well just talk to each other really <laughs> to begin with and record it for people to listen to um but i started listening to deep dive last year um when i started to begin to learn uh very rudimentarily uh japanese and trying to just kind of plug in to like the, the culture and what's going on in japan um and i remember that that episode that you actually just spoke about like the climbing to mount fuji i remember being really jealous about it because we were in the midst of really quite tight restrictions here and although the wind was rattling and there was rain and i think it was one where you were with your your friend who was potentially struggling a little bit to begin with um <laughs> even really that sounded i was re i was sat there going oh gosh like he's outside and i'm not <laughs> yeah well so i mean the story behind that one actually we, we did actually make it quite a I think it was six months before the pandemic really struck. So it was like long before anything um, like that was really on anyone's minds. Um, but yeah, the story behind that one was I, I have a bit of a weird obsession with Mount Fuji. I like 
I've basically I've done it eight times and I've tried to do it different ways every time so you know the kind of normal climb for sunrise the climbing it to go skiing down it which is also amazing and then um, that time I'd I'd tried to do a sea to summit with some friends and we'd cycled up to the start of the path uh walked to the top and then skied down altogether. i got back from that trip and my colleague said god I, how did you do that I've, I've never even climbed a single mountain you know uh, and that basically germinated the idea of this podcast where i said well if you've never climbed any mountains why don't we make your first proper climb mount fuji and we can record it all for the podcast and yeah uh see how it goes and you know part of the fun was as you so diplomatically put it that he was struggling (laughs) for for a lot of it um yeah which which made for a really good episode and you know went through all the different elements and luckily got to the top for a not for sunrise but for a beautiful rainbow appearing out of the crater um so yeah it it was kind of like a it was very good for the storytelling format and just a really nice climb as well I mean, that is really great that you even organised a rainbow at the end for your colleague. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <I> <laughs> mean, it's months in the planning just for that moment. <laughs> just for that special moment at the end. Because Mount Fuji is that that icon, uh, that iconic picture of Japan. It, it, I think if you ask people to think of a few things when they thought of, when if you ask them to think about Japan, Mount Fuji would probably be in that list, mm-hmm. along with, you know, other thing like you know pokemon cherry blossom cherry blossom rama maybe sushi hello kitty oh hang on is she japanese yeah she is she is is. okay cool um but that kind of iconic image kind of dominating the the japanese landscape or at least kind of in and around tokyo and kind of i guess much further afield as well but thinking about japan more broadly what drew you there how did you end up doing what you're doing I mean, it's a very strange answer, or not, not, it's a kind of strange coincidence of factors that led me here, some of which actually involves mountain climbing. Um, but basically, I got a language scholarship out of university, which had nothing to do with my degree. I studied geography at university, and I was, you know, as you do when you get to the end of university, you go, shit, what's next? Um, and one of the things my university offered was a kind of scholarship partnership with a with a university down in southern Japan um, in a city called Fukuoka. So that's what originally brought me over here. And then while I was there, or while I was down in Fukuoka, um, you know, if you've been to Japan, you'll know that it's a very, very mountainous country, which is very different to say, you know, London, where, where there are no mountains in sight. So I was in my room on that first day and looked out of the window and I could see mountains going on for miles and miles and miles and kind of as, as semi as a joke, but, you know, also a little bit of ambition. I was like, oh, well, in the first, you know, six months I'm here, I'll try and climb every single one of those mountains. Um, and so I found the ones that had guides written for them in English and I climbed those first and just kind of you know, went up them and had, had yeah, a few good hikes. And then after that, I started just writing guides for the ones that hadn't been written about in English just as I did them and started sending them to a local magazine called Fukuoka Now, um, which is a really good resource if you're ever in Fukuoka in southern Japan. Um, and that turned into like a full-time freelance, well, a freelance thing for them, regular freelance thing for them, which then turned into a full-time job for them, which turned into freelancing for the Japan Times, which turned into full-time at the Japan Times and moving up to Tokyo at that point. And once I got there, I, I met another um, colleague who was really into podcasting at the time. Um, this was just like after the daily had started and like the the 
it's kind of beginning of the second wave of podcasting i guess um and that's how deep dive happened and that's why i'm here now still <laughs> i guess <Yeah. laughs> kind of a long story but yeah um a, lo- a lot of chance and just kind of doing bits and pieces here and there leading to something well hopefully more interesting things that's really cool so you started off temporary and now several years later you're still in japan yeah (laughs) so i'm guessing it's not just the mountains that are keeping you there no can you just tell us a little bit more about what it is about japan that has kept you yeah i mean so a lot of it i think is based on how good i think tokyo is as a city um and i think a lot of people if they've never been to tokyo the picture you get of tokyo is this like super urban metropolis flashy lights neon stuff etc etc um it's all about the city right but when i moved to japan that was when i had the realization that yeah there are these mountains and then when i moved to tokyo specifically one of the things i really remember standing out um was i went on the subway and one of the signs they have like the warning signs on the subway is like please don't lean your skis up against the like subway barriers basically i was like hang on is tokyo a ski town because that's like suddenly the vibe I got. And I realized that the the amazing thing about Tokyo is that you have a city which in its like greatest population sense has something like 38 million people. Like the center of it has about eight to 10 million. So it's about the same size as London. Um, so with that, you have all the amazing city life, you know, not so much now with COVID, but like being able to go out, go to amazing restaurants, all the amazing art, the culture, et cetera. But then an hour away by train, you do have these mountains that I've mentioned a couple of hours away by train, you have amazing ski resorts um, and, you know, you can get to the coast and the beach and um, everything else. Um, And, you know, within Japan itself, like, you'll know if you've been here that it stretches, you know, right the way in the North to Hokkaido, which is basically the same latitude as Russia and very cold um, to Okinawa in the South, which is the same latitude roughly as Taiwan or Hong Kong. Um, so it's like tropical islands and it's all within one country. So as a place to like travel and live, there's just a huge amount of variety um, that, that is just so much fun to explore. Yeah, I can imagine. I've not been yet. Have, have you guys? Yeah, I was going to ask, have you guys been here? Not yet. I mean, um, Holly's got a, a, a different story, but for me it was, I've I tentatively booked to go this year when they had opened bookings again and figured well what's the worst that can happen airlines are offering flexible booking um i'm a year into language learning so i may as well try and book a trip but then obviously i should have been i think i should still be there right now um in theory in a different in a parallel universe i'm enjoying the cherry blossom right now (laughs) yeah enjoying the cherry Um, blossom and the the thunderstorm (laughs) yeah quite um but yeah, so it's it's on the cards, but not quite made it over there yet. So I have been to Japan on my gap year. So I have Japanese godparents, um, so uh. Japanese family that my parents have known all of my life. So they were in, in the UK when I was born. Um, my mum taught them English and then they moved back to Japan. So I went over to stay with them in Tokyo, which was, I think, going somewhere like Japan and going to stay with a Japanese family you get a full the full experience. Mm. So um, what 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 did you do at the time? What what do you remember of your how long were you here? Um so I think it was 12 days maybe. 
always remember, I don't think I've ever been so cold as I was. It was February and we went um, to see some temples and I thought, oh, I'll wear some little ballet flats because, you know, I'm sick of wearing my trainers all the time. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I actually <laughs> cried because I thought I would never feel my feet again. It was, it snowed, it was Arctic. Oh, so we went to stay in one of the traditional hotels by the sea. I can't remember where it was, um, but where they roll out your bed in the morning. Yep. Um, sit on the little cushions to have your breakfast. Always recall my breakfast was this full fish, teeth, eyes, tail. It was like looking at me. It was definitely cooked. So it was definitely dead. But I remember thinking, oh, this is a Japanese experience or this is not a <laughs> British experience. Like, where's the batter? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, breakfast is, I think, especially as a traveller, I think I think you get used to it over time, but having like a full, very salty breakfast normally because you have the fish, you have various pickles, et cetera, et cetera, rice, soy sauce. Um, yeah, that is, I, I do remember struggling a lot with that at the beginning as well. And I remember when my dad first came out here, you know, um, it was within a couple of months of me first moving to Japan and, uh, yeah, we were sat over breakfast together in a similar kind of traditional uh, inn somewhere, uh, kind of looking at, looking at each other, going like, "This would be a great dinner. This would be fantastic yeah. for a dinner." But as a breakfast, you know, wouldn't mind some cocoa pops or just Weetabix <laughs> or whatever else. Yeah, because there is there is that stark contrast in in many different ways. That you know, that and food is is one of them, and that kind of oh yeah, oh, oh gosh, can I really stomach this at seven o'clock in the morning? Have you noticed other things as someone who's been there for a while, but you know, you're you're not Japanese, you didn't grow up in in that part of the world. So have you noticed other things in your time that still every now and again surprise you or kind of go, Oh, hang on a minute, that's not quite how we do it back in Blighty? <laughs> I mean, yeah, there's there's plenty of things. Um I, I think, you know, as someone who grows up in England, like especially when it comes to textures your palate is so limited so like take a chicken for example what you end up eating most of the time is chicken breast or like maybe you're feeling adventurous like a bit of brown meat off the leg but you know if you go to a yakitori joint here which is you know one of those like a uh, kind of barbecue skewer type places where they grill it over the charcoal they'll take everything from you the heart the liver the skin the coccyx um, and it's just you know a completely different textual experience so i think that's one of the things you notice pretty quickly coming here the other thing i mean the biggest difference is just the ubiquity of foods basically every price point whether you're spending 500 yen which is about three pounds or so to you know like ten thousand yen about 70 quid for a meal or up you know japanese food can get horrendously expensive um but whatever price point you go to it is always delicious you can always find something that is fantastic and something there's something like a hundred thousand restaurants in tokyo is kind of like a conservative estimate um so just the dining culture here is much more common like especially pre-covid like just the amount you can go out and have a really good meal that tastes pretty fresh that's been lovingly handmade by someone and comes to you know not more than 20 quid including drinks um mm it's just something you can do very easily and and there's there's so much of it so i think that's a real difference when it comes to the food japanese people are very proud of how good their food is and like you know i just don't think you can exist as a not very good restaurant here for more than about yeah. three days one of my um favorite restaurants in in london is a is a japanese place called tokyo diner which has been 
like shut for the entire pandemic and they're doing some takeaway stuff now but i'm really worried they're not going to open back up again because again it's it's really simple honest food but mm. made really really well to a very high standard um and at an accessible price point um it's in the heart of kind of theater land or kind of in and around leicester square so it's an expensive part of town in london but the food is great you get the kind of the the kind of uh, brown rice tea as it all kind of gets thrown in and at lunch you get miso soup as well and it's you know it's that whole kind of experience um mm. and the food is always good i've never had a bad meal there yeah no like food in japan is one of the best things about it i think you know it it shows at you know lunchtime as well when no one sits at their desk eating stuff I mean, I mean, some people do, but the vast majority will go out and find somewhere nice for lunch or will have you know, packed a, a bento, so like a packed lunch type thing um, from the morning and take it with them and like find somewhere proper to eat. And it does feel like there's a bit more respect when it comes to you know, the time spent uh, eating food, that this is something that you go, okay, I'm going to take a break from you know, the day job as busy as Japanese people are. And, you know, there's a lot of you know, people do work very long hours, but f- certainly when it comes to food time, that's, it's like a proper part of the day where you can enjoy it and, uh, yeah, take a moment to have some very, very good food. So, um, Oscar, I wanted to ask you thinking a bit about food. This has led me onto it. A few months ago, Luke sent me a message and said, oh, I've just found this TV show um, you might be interested in. Now, bear in mind, I'm on furlough. So, you know, <laughs> I do have some time with my life uh, called Terrace House. He was like, oh, yes. I like it. Little <laughs> did Luke know that... Um, Start me off on an actual obsession. So I would just to intercede here at this point, I was trying to find accessible Japanese TV that I could watch and listen to help with pronunciation and to help with, you know, just general kind of acts. Also, you know, it helped yeah, yeah. quite at times entertaining, but just to, my cards on the table, I was trying to <laughs> language learn. <laughs> that's a common excuse yeah i know that's that's yeah. and that's what i'm sticking to that's my line and you won't be able to change it i mean i had no excuse except furlough honestly i went down a very very deep japanese hole so i just kept messaging luke going episode 25 episode 40 yeah, you raced ahead i went full <laughs> steam i mean i cried i had to re-watch episodes i'm now on the third season that's on netflix so I feel like I've picked up quite a lot of Japanese. Yeah. <laughs> but thinking about food, I've noticed, first of all, my housemates and I just sit there going, how are they making such great looking food? I've literally just heated up some pasta from yesterday. The food looks amazing, but it's quite interesting to see how everyone gets involved there. And they mm. make these really beautiful looking meals. And food does seem to be, I can see how it's quite important to them. But moving on from that, thoughts on Terrace House? <laughs> See, I haven't watched it that much. Actually, one of the like earliest podcast episodes we did for the Japan Times was two of my colleagues who were absolute Terrace House fans just trying to persuade me for about 40 minutes to watch it and me going, I don't get like, I don't watch reality TV show much in the UK. I, I don't really see the point in watching something in Japanese, which, you know, has been described as very slow and lacking in any kind of discernible drama. And like even the kind of drama flashpoints in it tend to be very, very slow and kind of mild. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I think again, very diplomatic. Um, 
it's uh, but it is beautifully shot i think that's one of the things like i mean i've I've watched enough to like understand what it is and it's it's beautifully shot um obviously the places they go with it and you know like all the food making scenes in particular are just very very nicely done they've obviously got someone and the netflix budget um to to really kind of up the production game on it because a lot actually like i think terrace house is a bit of a rare example where a lot of japanese tv looks horrendously low budget by comparison if you were to watch something on nhk which is the equivalent of bbc um you know you don't really see the kind of grand flagship show where with like the beautiful cinematography of something like planet earth um or anything with david attenborough in it it's like a lot of it just looks like very brightly lit stuff so yeah so when i saw terrace house i was yeah kind of pleasant pleasantly surprised by how beautiful it did look and kind of the the pacing and the, the the setting of all the shots was just something that very different from other japanese tv i'd seen that's interesting because it kind of almost feels like luke i don't know if you'd agree but it feels to me very japanese in that it's very perfectly formed it looks beautiful it's not offensive at all um it very gently kind of pulls you in i mean i found this one of the seasons we literally sat through 20 episodes where nothing happened and then suddenly the 21st episode we had a tiny bit of drama and my housemates and I we were up till midnight <laughs> like we were hooked. so yeah. as an outsider it feels very Japanese yeah, yeah and I think as well the kind of the the dynamic of then seeing how the the panel the commentators interact with each other and how they how they respond those were the real golden moments for me yeah, those yeah. are the bits that i am increases and just like <laughs> you know again picking up on on new words that are being used to describe situations and that kind of thing but also just the way that they interact with one another as well it, those those moments have been in stitches but more broadly programs like terrace house do do offer i mean it's reality tv so obviously there's a gloss to it and as you said the cinematography is beautiful and it's all very shiny and here's a nice like panned shot of all the trees and whatever um so there is an element of it's it's staged but it does offer really interesting insight for westerners who have had no lived experience of of a culture that at times feels polar opposite to ours you know, ranging from mealtimes right through to etiquette to when you say hello to someone, you know, it, all of these things are, are, are so vastly different. Mm. Um, and the shows like that, I think, have really helped me gain an insight in when I haven't been able to to visit the country. Mm. Well, I think from talking to people who I know are really fans, one of the things a lot of people point out is just to the, the extent to which it does humanize young Japanese people in particular, and in that also biracial people, um, mm. which often aren't seen on Japanese TV. Um, but, you know, if you look at the dem demographics of Japanese, of, of Japan, it's something like 98.1% Japanese. Uh, I know, I think it's 98.9% Japanese. It's just like incredibly homogenous as a society. But as it's kind of let in more immigrants you know including myself um it is becoming a more multiracial culture and there are more and more people who are um of different races are biracial etc etc but that hasn't yet really appeared in kind of the mainstream tv mm. so i think what perhaps it is netflix's influence as well and kind of the more international focus and knowing that it's going to be distributed 
kind of across the world rather than just to a domestic audience. I think it does do a much better job at capturing that kind of um, variety that Japan does offer. Coming back to the point of like it being beautifully designed, Japan is such an interesting country when it comes to that because the really well de- designed stuff is so well designed. And, you know, you, you will say, for example, go to a department store here and go to their like food section and see all the food packaging. And it's just glorious. Like it's beautiful to see. But at the same time, there is so much in Japan, which is so completely garish. And, you know, it's just like big neon signs, flashy block letters. And that's kind of part of the appeal as well. Like Japan loves to advertise itself as this country of contrast. So it's really interesting seeing both sides of the, the coin where like, you've got that kind of beautiful, beautiful simplicity which I think you see in Terrace House of like just clean, clean stuff. And then at the other end, you just have like the clutter, which is, you know, if you look across Tokyo from any vantage point is just like a visual representation of, of the city, basically. That is reality. It's nice to be reminded, okay, not everything is perfect. And I've seen that in Terrace House, like sometimes they walk down a street and I'm like, oh my giddy aunt, are you in a theme park? Or <laughs> are you on a street? <laughs> it's always struck me as well again someone who hasn't visited but it almost feels like you could take back layers on a street view or even in a a, a, like you've got it's almost like it's tiered uh, and i can kind of picture like okay well here's the kind of you know historical part but then like a massive electricity pylon has been set up next to it and all the wires are above ground so you can see all of those and then you've Mm. got the kind of you know, building post-war buildings that have been slowly but surely have evolved. And it kind of, it feels like a very almost, it's, it's like a 3D jigsaw where things have been layered over time. Um, and I remember when I first, again, started taking an interest in Japan, reading some of, Ale- well, a lot of Alex Kerr's books. And he really laments this kind of industrializing or modernizing of Japan mm. in this way and talks about kind of the, the concreting of Japan and, you know, these great industrial projects that were just kind of created to create jobs and you know roads to nowhere um so it really it, it, again as an outsider it, it strikes me as a as a country of contrasts is that your experience living there yeah totally um i mean if we're talking about alex kerr stuff he's he's written fantastically about um those kind of issues especially the concrete concreting of japan um and yeah, well, I mean, one thing I know about or I think about the UK in relation to Japan is like the focus on conservation is much, much higher in the UK. And part of the reason I think it lacks in Japan, I think there's a few different reasons. Some of it might come down to the fact that like the country gets periodically flattened by earthquakes. And so they're just used to rebuilding very quickly or at least parts of the parts of the country very quickly. Part of it, I think, comes from like, the rapid adoption of kind of western technologies that happened first in like i'm not going to go too much into history but when the meiji era started basically before that japan had been in this self-imposed period of isolation and then america came along and said you got to trade with us Mm -hmm. and basically japan adopted all these technologies so there was like one mass period of adoption then and then post world war ii when the american occupation which lasted until i think 1952 um there was this kind of like rapid adoption of so-called like western values and i think the speed at which that happened means that i think conservation or like prioritizing a beautiful old temple as opposed to the new electricity pylon that goes next to it has just kind of been completely forgotten and so you do see it in 
the countryside in particular where you have for example a dam that's just been built on a river that seems to have no flow anyway and so you're going what is this protecting and you know you've just ruined this beautiful what would otherwise be a really beautiful part of japan there yeah there's a huge amount of just like concreting for <laughs> no reason um in my opinion and i mean one of the things i experienced recently which is quite interesting was going up to tohoku which was the area affected by the 311 earthquake so the massive earthquake that happened on march 11th 2011 and there they've just their response to the tsunami that came afterwards was just to build these giant seawalls concrete seawalls along the entire coastline that was affected and you know on one hand you can say oh this might protect communities in the future um from future tsunamis if they were to happen but on the other side it makes on the other hand it makes the whole place feel like a prison like you know you've got these walls which are 10 meters high you're driving along them you can't see the sea these are coastal communities um you know most of them rely on fishing for example and the residents there can no longer see the sea or even access the sea particularly easily so yeah there is a real kind of tendency in japan just to kind of put up new infrastructure for the sake of it and yeah it does cause create jobs etc but with not that much consideration for shall we keep this looking pristine and beautiful it's something i don't think you really see if you were to spend a week here two weeks here but you do really start to notice it if you you know begin to live a life here i wondered um if i might just quickly go back to um, something else that you had mentioned and you were talking about kind of the kind of racial diversity and the homogeneity of, of Japan. And I guess my question for you is what's your experience of, of living as, you know, a, a, a white British guy in, in Japan and, you know, fair haired, fair skinned. Um, and what, you know, what, what has that experience been like in a country where by and large everyone looks and at least publicly thinks the same i mean it's been fantastic to be honest like i'm I'm not yeah i there are moments every now and then where you know someone might kind of look at you with surprise and say oh you know gaijin or whatever (laughs) a foreigner and you know just kind of bat it off because at, at least you know even if there's kind of some emotional aggression there towards you from that person like it's very rare, I think, at least for you know, like a white person living in Japan to have any kind of physical violence. There definitely are problems, when, especially when it comes to policing, for example, against you know certain ethnic minorities here. I think if you were um, a Zainichi Korean that mm-hmm. lived in Japan, you might have some more problems and there's more of a history of that. And um but yeah for me it's it's not an issue that i really spend any time dwelling on in like relation to my my own status living here really yeah by and large like tokyo especially is is kind of more and more international by the day and i don't think 99.9 percent of japanese people really care at all that (laughs) that like in, in any kind of active aggressive way that there are there are foreigners living here and most of the experiences most of the interactions i've had with japanese people are just like delightful and um interesting and helpful and just fun basically just before we kind of wrap up our, our chat together, I'm wondering what are you excited about for what's coming up next? Uh, I, you know, there's there's so many 
things I'm sure always going on in in kind of Japan in Tokyo the Olympics are coming up and everything else but for you what are you what what are you working on what are you really excited about sure um I mean everything I think when you're planning at the moment everything's got to be given with this caveat of it depends on what happens with the virus like I think the last time we spoke uh Japan was doing pretty well but now it appears to be rocketing towards kind of its fourth wave which we'll see what happens the Olympics yeah might happen might not don't don't really know the official line is it is happening but I think it could get cancelled again just because yeah just because of the coronavirus um Personally, right now, I have just started at a full-time language school, which is quite exciting, quite a different pace of life. So I'm taking a kind of a three-month hiatus sabbatical from work um, just to focus on the Japanese and hopefully get that up to scratch a bit more so you know I can just stand on my own two feet a bit more while living in Japan. And then, you know, in terms of travel, I've got a really nice trip planned for golden week. So golden week is this week every May where all the national holidays kind of align to give basically everyone in the country about a week off work. Um, And so for that, um, I'm going to take the bullet train down to Hiroshima. And there's this really beautiful cycle ride called the Shimanami Kaido, which goes across um, from the mainland Honshu onto one of the fourth largest island which is called shikoku and it goes across all these tiny little islands then we're going to cycle across there um and then catch the ferry to kyushu which is kind of the southernmost island and then cycle down there and then hopefully go surfing for a few days amazing um and so yeah it's not um it's not a grand long-term plan but it's something i'm very excited for and it's just again japan is a a wonderful country to explore um especially by bike i'm going to throw that out there If, if anyone wants to bring their bike the roads are amazing um you know the flip side of all that infrastructure being built is that the roads are really 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 good i guess that that level of um geographical diversity in japan as you said earlier just offers so many different opportunities um all the best for the intensive or the kind of the 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 more intensive language learning um i imagine there's going to be a lot of kanji practice in that which good luck (laughs) (laughs) thank you very much oh i wish i could say a good luck in japanese but i could say arigato gozaimasu you can say arigato Arigato gozaimasu yeah that probably there you go holly as if planned that kind of segues (laughs) us in really nicely (laughs) thank you very much oscar for joining us today well thank you guys so much for having me it's been really fun Thank you so much to Oscar for joining us today. In our show notes, we'll be sharing links to where you can find out more about some of Oscar's work, including his social media and the Deep Dive podcast. So do follow Oscar and get engaged with life in Japan. In the meantime, you can like and review. And what else can people do, Holly? They can subscribe. They can subscribe. I mean, I think that's the main one we'd like right now. Thank you very much. Yep, Holly's on her subscription drive. So do like and review and subscribe and goodness knows what else. And of course, you can find us on social media as well uh, on our shiny new-ish Facebook page. Holly, what's that? Which is facebook.com forward slash worldly wellbeing. And then, of course, on Instagram, where I am at locomotionluca. And I am at Rome away from home. Um, so in the meantime, that just leaves us to say 
adieu or perhaps even sayonara for now until you tune in for the next installment of the Wildly Wellbeing podcast next week. <laughs>